This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., And I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. This episode features graphic descriptions of gun violence that some people may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised, especially for children under 13. In the early morning hours of June 8, 1975, Wilbert Popeye Jackson pulled up to his home in San Francisco with his lover, Sally Voy. Popeye knew how dangerous the world was for him. He was a black political activist, and he was romantically involved with a white woman. And so as he traversed the city streets, he was constantly on high alert. But on this night, as Popeye leaned across the front seat to kiss Sally, he let his guard down. While Popeye's back was to the window, a shadowy figure walked up to the car, aimed a gun toward the two lovers, and fired. Two rounds of bullets blazed through the window and into Popeye and Sally's entwined bodies. They never saw it coming. When friends found the pair the next morning, Popeye with his head resting against the seat and Sally with hers in his lap, rumors immediately began to swirl. News of the mysterious shooting rocked the activist community and enthralled the public. But as shocking as it was, few could have predicted that it would lead to an even stranger crime, the attempted assassination of an American president. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief, Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Female Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type 
female criminals in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Today we're covering Sarah Jane Moore, one of two women to ever attempt an assassination of a U.S. president. This week, we'll see how Sarah went from a young mother of five to an FBI double agent. We'll also explore the series of events that took Sarah from a casual observer of political change to a diehard revolutionary. Next week, we'll follow Sarah's trial and the media circus that ensued. We'll also explore the way her beliefs have changed over the years and whether or not she's come to regret her assassination attempt. From an early age, Sarah never felt completely comfortable at home. She grew up in a semi-rural community near Charleston, West Virginia, with three brothers and two sisters. A fairly normal, happy childhood. But Sarah and her siblings were put under a great deal of stress. Sarah's mother, Ruth, was a perfectionist. She often provided harsh critiques of her children's performance of their chores. Sarah's father, Olaf, could also be hard on his children. Notably, her siblings recalled that if they asked him a question about homework while he was in a foul mood, he'd snarl, If I told you, you wouldn't understand it anyways. Growing up with two harsh parents no doubt shaped Sarah as an adult, but her mother's high expectations in particular might have had the greatest toll on her development. Before we continue with Sarah's psychology, know that I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. According to a study conducted by psychologists Randy Frost, Kathleen Lahart, and Robin Rosenblatt, high levels of perfectionism in mothers, but not necessarily in fathers, can lead to a young woman developing perfectionist tendencies. Demanding mothers are also linked with greater occurrences of mental illness in their children. This suggests that Ruth's perfectionist tendencies likely had a deep, detrimental effect on her daughter. And unfortunately for Sarah, she had never had anywhere to turn. Though her five siblings experienced the same intense criticism from their parents, she never felt comfortable in their company. Sarah's older sister married young, leaving her alone with three brothers who had formed a close bond without her. School was equally isolating. Though Sarah excelled academically, she tended to be distant with her peers, never letting them truly get to know her. She often made up absurd lies about her family. She once told a classmate that they descended from royalty. Telling stories that framed her life in an interesting, positive light was a way for Sarah to get the attention she never received at home. She also attracted attention by showing off her many talents. Sarah was a skilled violinist, a talented actress, and excelled at the aviation lessons she took through the local Civil Air Patrol. It seemed that no matter what she tried her hand at, Sarah always excelled. Though she was a high achiever with a thirst for the spotlight, Sarah's odd behavior meant that her success never quite translated to the social realm. It would be something she struggled with well into adulthood. In 1946, Sarah had her strangest moment of all 
she disappeared. That fall, Sarah vanished during a routine walk to school. Her parents mounted a massive search but couldn't find her. None of Sarah's friends or teachers could think of a reason why she'd run away, nor could they pinpoint anyone who would kidnap her. Sarah's parents even reported the incident to the police. Then, just as mysteriously as she vanished, Sarah came back three days later. She returned in the same outfit she'd left in and offered no explanation for her disappearance. At a loss, her mother chalked up the traumatic event to a case of amnesia. She would never find out what happened to Sarah over the course of those three days. But there were no signs of abuse. It's likely that she left of her own accord. People who disappear intentionally are labeled maliciously missing by law enforcement. And in 75% of cases, these individuals have shown prior signs of mental illness. And though Sarah wasn't diagnosed at the time, this may very well have been the case. Perhaps vanishing was Sarah's way of coping with a highly critical home environment, leading to what would eventually become a penchant for fleeing her stressful life at whim. But after her first disappearance, life returned back to normal. That next spring, 18-year-old Sarah graduated from high school and decided to pursue a career in medicine at Charleston's St. Francis Hospital. At Charleston, Sarah again proved herself to be a spectacular student, but she dropped out right as she was nearing graduation. Much like her disappearance two years prior, Sarah offered no explanation for the sudden decision. A few months later, Sarah decided to join the Women's Army Corps, which allowed women to enter the military in non-combat positions. Sarah passed basic training with top marks and was placed in the prestigious Carlisle Barracks in Pennsylvania. From there, she rose through the ranks and was promoted by her superiors to the Officer Candidate School. But once again, despite her exceptional performance, Sarah left the program before she could graduate. This time, however, she had a reason. This time, she left for love. In the late 1940s, Sarah married Marine Staff Sergeant Wallace E. Anderson. The marriage disqualified her from Officers Candidate School, but Sarah didn't care. She was head over heels. She was happy. Unfortunately, her bliss wouldn't last. In 1950, 20-year-old Sarah was taking a public tour of the White House when she fainted. Crowds circled around her, fanning at the young woman's face. But when she finally came to, Sarah didn't know where she was. She didn't know who she was. Sarah was taken to the hospital, but even hours later, she still couldn't recall her own identity. Doctors found a series of photos tucked in her jacket, which they published in the paper in hopes that someone would recognize her. Luckily, Sarah's mother, Ruth, saw the photos and rushed to the hospital. And shortly after returning home, Sarah's memory inexplicably returned. 
It's difficult to determine whether this episode was a genuine case of amnesia or if Sarah was pulling yet another disappearing act. But at that point, she'd established a pattern of attempting to escape in one way or another when things got too stressful, or in some cases, disappointing. By 1950, Sarah had grown disillusioned with her life. She was no longer satisfied with her marriage. She wanted something, someone else. That very same year that she fainted on the floor of the White House, and after only a couple years of marriage, Sarah filed for divorce. Then, just two months later, she wed another military man, Sidney Lewis Manning. Manning was an Air Force captain. When his post was relocated to Tucson, Arizona, Sarah moved without hesitation, hoping for a new start out west. But new beginnings were difficult to come by at the time. After World War II, the country was plagued with paranoia over the potential spread of communism. Due to the Red Scare, the military was constantly primed for war. Manning was at the government's beck and call, and that meant so was Sarah. As a military wife, Sarah's choices were limited. No matter how talented or how intelligent she was, marrying Manning meant she was trapped on the Air Force base with little option but to be a housewife and soon a mother. In 1951, 21-year-old Sarah had her first child, a son named Sidney after her husband. Two years later, Sarah gave birth to her first daughter, Janet. All her life, Sarah had excelled at everything she tried her hand at, but motherhood proved too great a challenge. In the 1950s, Sarah found herself vastly underprepared for her new role as a mother of two. On top of the intense stress of parenting, Sarah's own mother, Ruth, was highly critical about how Sarah raised her two children. It seemed even as an adult, Sarah still wasn't good enough to meet Ruth's exacting standards. But if juggling a newborn, toddler, and her mother's criticism wasn't stressful enough, just three months after her daughter's birth, Sarah discovered she was pregnant again this time with her second daughter, Melissa. Melissa was severely disabled, so immediately after her birth, Sarah sent her off to an institution for children with disabilities. Though this wasn't uncommon at the time, unlike other parents, Sarah seemed to simply move on. Once Melissa was out of sight, Sarah reportedly forgot about her and rarely bothered to check on her well-being. Then, just a few months after giving her up, the family up and moved, relocating to an Air Force base just outside of Los Angeles. Shortly after the family settled, Sarah's brother, Skip, dropped by for a visit. But what he found at his sister's new home worried him. Sarah wasn't happy. She was distant from her kids, uninterested. She confided in Skip that she felt trapped on the Air Force base and was growing frustrated with the insular community. She told him that she'd recently made friends with a group of Hollywood socialites and couldn't help but compare the drudgery of her life to the excitement and freedom that they enjoyed. She felt stuck. 
Wanting to help, Ruth took Sid Jr. and Janet for the summer in the hopes that time apart might rekindle Sarah's love for her children. But by the time Ruth returned the kids to Sarah, things had only gotten worse. By the end of the summer, Sarah was not only pregnant again, but she had also filed for divorce from her second husband. And this time, running away wasn't as simple as walking out her front door. By 1956, 26-year-old Sarah was feeling overwhelmed, taking care of three young children all by herself. So she called Ruth and proposed she take the kids for another summer visit to West Virginia. And Ruth, ever the doting grandmother, eagerly agreed. So Sarah packed the kids up and boarded a flight to West Virginia. But when Ruth arrived at the airport to pick them up, she greeted Sydney Jr., Janet, and a flight attendant holding Sarah's nine-month-old son. Sarah was nowhere to be found. Once again, she had disappeared. Up next, we'll explore the aftermath of Sarah abandoning her children. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In 1956, 26-year-old Sarah Jane Moore pulled yet another disappearing act, this time abandoning her three young children with her mother, Ruth, in the process. The first few times Ruth tried to contact her daughter, Sarah picked up the phone and promised she'd come and retrieve her kids in two months. But she never came back for her children. And despite Ruth's efforts to track her down, Sarah disappeared so thoroughly that even the police couldn't find her. Sarah likely used fake social security numbers and aliases to hide her identity. Thus, very little is known about her life from 1956 until the next decade. However, in the 1960s, Sarah embarked on a new life as a single woman working in Los Angeles. The times were changing and women were fighting for equality. In her own way, Sarah participated in this fight, blazing a trail herself by getting an education at a prestigious school. The pursuit made her feel alive again. Sarah's positive feelings in the wake of abandoning her children aren't outside the norm. An article by Dr. Peggy Drexler explains that mothers sometimes abandon their children simply for the intoxicating freedom that being childless brings. After four children and two failed marriages by the age of 26, perhaps Sarah began to feel trapped. Perhaps she realized that the script she was supposed to follow as a woman in the 1960s just wasn't working for her. Shirking her parental responsibilities allowed Sarah to enjoy a period of self-discovery. 
She found that she loved attending school and networking with people who worked in the entertainment industry. And this endeavor allowed Sarah's love for the spotlight to resurface. She would later write that she enjoyed running laps around the UCLA track and chatting with Hollywood stars. And any chance she got, she bragged that she was dating someone big in Hollywood. But this period of freedom ended in June 1965, when 35-year-old Sarah married her third husband, John Alberg. Just one month later, she was pregnant with his child. A familiar fear bubbled to the surface. Once again, Sarah felt anxious and trapped. She was bored of Los Angeles and craved a change of atmosphere. So, pregnant with her fifth child, Sarah left John and moved six hours north to San Francisco. On March 6, 1966, she gave birth to a boy, Frederick. John sent child support and longed to be with his son, but when he asked, Sarah adamantly refused to move back to L.A. Instead, she sought a new sense of meaning in politics by joining Republican Senator George Murphy's campaign. Sarah was so fixated on her new job that she alienated a lot of her friends, but her new political pursuits momentarily filled her craving for meaning and purpose. And soon, Sarah also found stability. In San Francisco, she met Dr. Willard Carmel, a physician who was 10 years her senior. Knowing Willard could provide for her and her son, Sarah married him in 1967. Shortly after, the small family moved to Danville, about 30 miles outside of San Francisco. Danville was a middle-class suburb much like the one Sarah had been trying to escape all her life. So it's no surprise that when she got there, she grew restless once again. Sarah found her neighbors superficial. While massive cultural changes were taking place in San Francisco, Danville remained a sheltered oasis. The streets of San Francisco were roiling with activism and marches, ushering in the civil and women's rights movements. But Danville was far more concerned with neighborhood cookouts and golf games. She hated it. Sarah began reading about revolutionary groups based in San Francisco and Berkeley. And as she devoured more and more literature, a fire grew inside of her. It wasn't so much the radical beliefs that spurred her interest, but rather the feeling of being just on the outside of something larger, something exciting. Sarah longed to get in on the action. Eventually, she began visiting San Francisco to attend lectures about class struggle in America. By this point, her fourth marriage was crumbling. In 1971, after four years of marriage, 31-year-old Sarah filed for divorce from Willard Carmel. The divorce didn't faze her. It enabled her to jump headfirst into becoming an activist. Soon, she was participating in protests for farm workers' rights. And she loved it. In the beginning, it didn't even matter what she was fighting for. Sarah just loved fighting for something, for the activity providing the perfect escape from the suburban life that she found so mind-numbing. 
While the causes she joined were thrilling, nothing quite captured Sarah's attention like the 1974 kidnapping of Patricia Hearst. Patricia, the granddaughter of publishing magnate William Randolph Hearst, was kidnapped by the Symbionese Liberation Army, or SLA, when she was just 19. The SLA, a radical leftist group, hoped they could use the kidnapping to coerce her wealthy grandfather into giving every poor person in California $70, or about $360 today. Their demands were beyond the Hearst family's means, but William Randolph Hearst established a program called People in Need, or PIN, and donated $2 million to the organization. And as a further concession, Hearst also agreed that the program would be run largely by volunteers from the SLA. Sarah was riveted. Now 44 years old, she saw working for PIN as the perfect chance to start over again. At PIN, Sarah met a more diverse group of people than she'd ever encountered in her life. Black students, teenagers, ex-convicts, hippies, and graduate students. Their different backgrounds fascinated Sarah. But despite this, Sarah wasn't fast to make friends. While the other volunteers made fiery speeches atop cars and bragged about being arrested, Sarah only had stories about suburbia. She kept to herself. Adding to her difficulties, Sarah's day-to-day work at PIN didn't live up to what she'd imagined. The organization had severe structural issues, leaving it vulnerable to exploitation. For instance, on the second day that PIN distributed food, an angry mob attacked the delivery truck, rushing PIN volunteers. For once, Sarah didn't flee responsibility. Instead, she stepped up to the plate to fill the gap in PIN's leadership. She began managing PIN's press and participating in interviews. Many reporters in the Bay Area soon came to recognize her name. But though Sarah rose in the organization's ranks, once again, she struggled to make allies. However, a volunteer named Wilbert Popeye Jackson deeply influenced her. Popeye had been involved in the radical scene for several years and helped found the United Prison Union, a well-respected radical reform group. His experience and status in the community drew Sarah to him. He was knowledgeable about the struggles of poor San Franciscans and understood what they needed out of PIN. But these associations with radical elements drew the attention of forces much larger than anything Sarah had encountered before. The FBI heavily targeted radical groups because they frequently incited violence against those in power. In a bid to prevent these groups from gaining influence, FBI agents gathered covert intel and used it to destroy the group from the inside out. And PIN was no different. The FBI agent assigned to the Hearst kidnapping, Charles Bates, researched every single member of PIN in an attempt to root out SLA members who might have information about Patty's whereabouts. By February 20th, 1974, the SLA had been holding Patty Hearst for two weeks. 
Bates thought Sarah might make the perfect FBI informant because she was close with Popeye, who was heavily involved with the SLA. Bates figured that if he could get more information on Popeye, it might lead to Patty. The FBI soon found Sarah and attempted to convince her to gather information for them. They reportedly told her the volunteers at PIN were dangerous and that many of them were members of the KGB and the Communist Party in China. Because Sarah had little experience in the world of radical politics, she believed them and agreed to help. Though the FBI believed that they'd just gained an invaluable informant, someone who was both influential and well-connected within PIN, they couldn't have been more wrong. Sarah was generally unliked among staff and volunteers at PIN. Her mood swings alienated her from her co-workers, and she often gave odd excuses for failing to turn in important paperwork. And when anyone tried to confront her, she was cruel and insulting. Things came to a head when Jack Palladino, a high-ranking volunteer at PIN, discovered that Sarah had listed a fake address, social security number, and work history to gain employment with PIN. So he fired her. Even after this, the FBI decided to keep Sarah as an informant, hoping that her friendship with Popeye might yield information on Patty's whereabouts. And so they simply redirected her to other leftist groups. At the urging of the FBI, Sarah attended meetings of other radical organizations and joined new communist reading groups. The FBI wanted her to watch for signs of divisiveness so they might be able to convert other members into informants. Little did the FBI know, this request would plant the seed of Sarah's radicalization. As she listened to the activists discussing the path to important social change, Sarah began to believe what they were saying. She began doubting the narrative the FBI fed her. These people didn't seem to be foreign operatives. They were just trying to do the right thing. This realization caused Sarah to warm up to the activists. This was in part because she believed in their mission, but also because in 1974, 44-year-old Sarah was looking for a community. Both her marriage and job had ended, and while she was still living in her home in Danville, the terms of her divorce with Willard dictated that she would have to move out. In this period of transition and upheaval, Sarah was slowly discovering a support system among the revolutionaries who accepted her as she was. After six months of working as an informant for the FBI, Sarah became friends with a major radical revolutionary who went by the alias Tom. The feds were eager to get as much information on Tom as possible, so they pushed Sarah to continue getting closer to him. But as time went on, Sarah felt conflicted over spying on Tom and the other activists, who she now considered friends. So she came clean to Tom and told him everything. At first, he didn't believe Sarah, but when he realized she was serious, Tom simply urged her to stop. Soon after, Sarah told the FBI she'd blown her cover. The agents were angry, 
but they couldn't do much more than let her walk. Sarah expected to feel relieved to no longer be working with the feds. Instead, she felt left out in the cold. She realized that being an informant had kept her finger on the pulse of radical groups. She only knew what was going on because the FBI had told her what was happening. Without their information, Sarah didn't know where meetings were taking place, and soon she found she was growing apart from the radical community she depended on. And she missed the sense of community terribly. Meanwhile, the FBI was having no luck finding a new informant to replace Sarah. No one, it seemed, could get close to the mysterious Tom. No one besides Sarah. In October 1974, Sarah reapproached the FBI and asked to be reinstated. Surprisingly, they agreed. It was a first for the Bureau. They almost never took back informants who had blown their cover, but they were desperate, and Sarah took it as a point of pride. Sarah renewed her attendance at radical meetings and soon became more integrated with the left. However, several people still didn't trust her. So in a bid to earn their regard, Sarah began acting as a double agent. Throughout the fall and winter of 1974, she informed the FBI about the left, but she also began informing the left about who the FBI had tabs on. This unique position as a double agent made Sarah feel extremely important. Despite the ego boost both groups afforded her, ultimately, Sarah felt like they were both flawed for trusting her. In an interview, she said, Bureau folks were assholes who labeled anyone caring about human rights as the dupes of foreign governments. About leftists, she said, Here I was, walking around an admitted FBI informant, and if they were so stupid as to talk to me, they needed to be taught a lesson. Sarah saw herself as above them all. As Sarah's role in the revolutionary community grew, she became friends with Errol Hendra and Dan O'Neill, the owners of a camera shop on Folsom Street, which had become a hub for leftist radicals. The pair liked talking to Sarah, but they found her intense. They got a laugh out of discussing off-the-wall ideas with her because they knew Sarah would take them seriously. In 1975, Dan floated a particularly crazy theory. During a casual conversation, Dan reportedly jokingly implied that what would really start a revolution was the assassination of President Gerald R. Ford. Dan's rationale went like this. Ford wasn't elected to the vice presidency. He was confirmed by Congress after Nixon's vice president, Spiro Agnew, resigned in disgrace. So when Ford became president and nominated Nelson A. Rockefeller as his vice, it was the first time that no one in the highest offices of the United States was an elected official. Dan theorized that assassinating President Ford and thus putting Rockefeller, an unelected president, in office might kickstart a revolution. Even though Rockefeller wasn't a favorite among the American left, he had been elected to four terms as the governor of liberal-leaning New York. The odds of his presidency inspiring a revolution were slim. 
And Dan and Errol were well aware of this. They were just joking around. But Sarah, who was always eager to ingratiate herself with radicals, immediately hopped on board. She said enthusiastically, then you agree with me. You see what I've been saying all along. Dan could sense he had struck a major chord with her. Alarmed, he softened his rhetoric, saying, neither Ford nor Rocky was really elected. That's all I'm saying. The conversation ended there. As far as Dan knew, Sarah moved on, continuing on in her quest to find community in America's radical left, even as she actively worked for the FBI. Up next, we'll see how the death of an important activist led Sarah to finally pick a side. Now back to the story. In 1975, 45-year-old Sarah Jane Moore was still working as a double agent for both the FBI and radical leftist groups. She enjoyed the important status she held in both organizations, but she was beginning to sympathize far more with her radical friends than with the FBI. But though she had her misgivings, Sarah remained loyal to the Bureau. That changed on June 9, 1975. On that night, Wilbert Popeye Jackson and his girlfriend were murdered by a mysterious assailant while sitting in a car outside his house. In the aftermath, a flurry of rumors emerged as the left speculated about who killed Popeye. Some blamed other leftist radical groups, while others pointed fingers at the government, specifically the FBI. Sarah and Popeye were once close, but had grown apart in the months before his death. He suspected that Sarah was still working for the FBI, and of course, he was right. After his death, the Berkeley Barb, a local newspaper, reached out to Sarah for an interview. Knowing that she was friends with Popeye, they hoped that she may have pertinent information. Sarah used the opportunity to finally come clean about her career as a double agent. It's unclear why she made this decision. Perhaps Sarah was racked with guilt knowing that the FBI was potentially responsible for her old friend's death. And maybe she saw the interview as a means to get back at the FBI for their supposed crimes. Or perhaps she was simply craving the spotlight once more. Regardless of the reason, she soon informed the FBI of her plans to reveal her informant status in the interview. They were furious. The agents strongly advised Sarah against the decision, warning that public exposure could be disastrous. They explained that she could be endangering herself, her life. But Sarah had already made up her mind, and there was little they could do to stop her. In June 1975, Sarah divulged to reporters that she'd been a federal informant. Despite the Fed's warning, she felt the radical community would stand by her. She was wrong. When the interview went public on June 20th, 1975, Sarah received incessant anonymous hate calls. 
and soon the former double agent became worried about her safety, so she took matters into her own hands. That month, Sarah bought a 44 caliber revolver. She was well-practiced with guns because of her training with the WCA in her early 20s, but it wasn't enough to ease her paranoia. So in early July, she packed her bags, left San Francisco, and drove 30 minutes away to East Bay with her son Frederick in tow. Once there, she sublet a small apartment. Completely ostracized from the radical community, Sarah was lonely and miserable. In a particularly sad moment, she took Frederick to see a radical movie in Berkeley. There were three seats on either side of her, fellow radicals refusing to sit by the ousted informant. Upon witnessing this, Frederick asked his mother, why would you want to be with these people when it makes you so sad? Sarah had no response, ashamed that even her son could see how alone she was. Making matters worse, the FBI had also turned on Sarah. They now considered her dangerous to the Bureau. Sarah was truly alone now. After betraying both the FBI and the radical left, she had nowhere to turn. The two organizations that served as her social support had rejected her. Now, Sarah was truly alone. Isolated and dejected, Sarah directed all her ire at the FBI. She concluded that they had used her. Desperate for a new community, Sarah aligned herself with the leftist organization, Tribal Thumb. It would be a new start. And so, just as she had done so many times before, Sarah reinvented herself. Tribal Thumb was not a group that shied away from violence. They lambasted leftists who focused on rhetoric over action. They prized extremism over moderation. Tribal Thumb was associated with the New World Liberation Front, an organization that was indicted for conspiring to commit 16 bombings targeting politicians and oil companies that threatened the left's mission. Despite these violent associations, Sarah regularly attended Tribal Thumb's group retreats in Northern California. It's unclear why the group chose to overlook her past as an FBI informant, but they accepted her, causing Sarah to feel like she'd finally found a community once again. According to Dutch social psychologist Case Vandenbos, individuals are especially vulnerable to radicalization when they feel uncertain and threatened. After losing all her support systems in the FBI and in her other radical groups, Sarah was desperate to cling on to tribal thumb, causing her to be especially susceptible to radicalization and thus vulnerable to their violent rhetoric. Eager to remain in Tribal Thumb's good graces and persuaded by their pro-violence stance, Sarah wanted more than anything to prove her loyalty, and she saw the perfect opportunity to solidify her status in the group when President Gerald R. Ford planned a speaking arrangement at Stanford in Palo Alto, roughly 35 miles south of San Francisco. Two days before Ford's arrival, on September 20, 1975, 
45-year-old Sarah made a cryptic phone call to San Francisco Police Inspector Jack O'Shea. Sarah complained to Jack that she was tired of the police treating leftists differently from conservatives. Then she informed him that she was coming to Stanford to test the security. This raised major alarm bells for Jack. Based on her ominous tone, he took her phone call as a threat and suspected that Sarah had a gun. He immediately alerted other branches of law enforcement, including agent Charles Bates at the FBI. Bates made sure that law enforcement was on high alert and had each branch issue internal notices to be on the lookout for Sarah. It didn't take long for them to find her. As soon as they did, Mission District Police confiscated Sarah's revolver and held her while they processed the warrant. This way, she wouldn't make it to Stanford while Ford spoke. When the president's speaking engagement was over, law enforcement finally let Sarah go. However, the Secret Service soon swooped in. They interviewed Sarah around 8.30 p.m. on September 21, 1975, and asked her a series of questions to determine whether or not she was still a threat. When the agents asked Sarah why she had a firearm, she explained that it was for her own personal protection. Sarah also used her status as a former FBI informant to throw the Secret Service off her trail. If she had helped their cause, how could she have possibly been planning to assassinate a president? It's not clear how long the Secret Service interrogated Sarah before they let her go. But when later asked why they released her at all, they claimed that Sarah was not of sufficient protection interest to warrant surveillance. But the Secret Service was wrong. By the next morning, on Monday, September 22, 1975, Sarah still wanted to make her allegiance to tribal thumb known, and she believed that the only way to do so was to assassinate President Gerald Ford. It was the first step in what she long believed would be the catalyst for a revolution. And so, desperate to please her new radical community, Sarah put her poorly considered violent plan into action. On September 22nd, Sarah walked into the shop of a local gun dealer named Mark Fernwood and purchased a 38 caliber Smith & Wesson. Mark later told the FBI that there was nothing odd about the interaction. After all, Sarah was a middle-aged woman in conservative attire. He didn't suspect a thing. There was no way he could even begin to imagine the sequence of events he just helped put into motion. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with part two of Sarah Jane Moore's story. We'll follow the court trial and media coverage of her attempted assassination and discover how Sarah's views changed during her subsequent imprisonment. For more information on Sarah Jane Moore, amongst the many sources we used, we found Taking Aim at the President by Jerry Spieler extremely helpful to our research. 
You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast Originals, like Female Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Female Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Bailey Benningfield, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson.